to the Yale University Press podcast. I'm Jessica Hollihan, and I'm delighted to introduce my guest, Zoller Lima, author of the acclaimed book, Lena Bobardi, which is newly out in paperback. In the New York Review of Books piece about the hardcover edition of the book, Martin Filler wrote, Lima's detailed but well-paced monograph is a feat of primary source scholarship and thoughtful analysis. Lima does a masterful job of candidly assessing his brilliant, somewhat erratic, and not always truthful subject. This important contribution to the literature will long remain the essential Bobardi publication. Solar Lima is also an educator who has taught at institutions around the world, a curator, including of the show Lina Bobardi Drawing, currently on view at the Joan Miro Foundation in Barcelona, and he is also an artist in his own right. Solar, thank you for finding some time to talk to me today. Well, thank you so very much, Jessica. It's a great pleasure. When your book, Lena Bobardi, was first published in hardcover in 2013, many of the reviews referred to Bobardi as an overlooked figure in the history of 20th century architecture, or in the same vein, referred to your book as long overdue. Thanks in no small part to your book and your scholarship, she's not quite as overlooked today, I think. But for those who are not yet very familiar with Bobardi, would you give us some biographical context? Who was Lena Bobardi? Well, thank you for the comments. I hope that uh, we're making a good contribution and making people aware of her. She um, she is uh, trained as an architect. Uh, she was born in Rome in 1914, and she passed away in Brazil in 1992 after having moved to Brazil in 1946, right after the Second World War. She was, of course, trained as an architect, and that was her basic uh, professional career identity. But she was mostly a polymath, and um, she operated in so many different cultural fields. And um, I would say she was also a very interesting public intellectual in Brazil, even though she was a very private person on her own. How much of her career was in Italy before she moved to Brazil, and how much of it was really in in South America? Uh, her, her education was completely um, done in Europe, and she was educated in Rome in the 1930s. In the 1940s, she moved to Milan, where she developed the first five years of her career. And as she used to say, uh, she chose to be an architect when everything was destroyed and nothing was built. So her solution for that was to engage with editorial work and some uh, illustration and uh, publications uh, that were still very much alive in the beginning of the 1940s, um, especially Milan, many of them coordinated by Gio Ponti, who was a very influential designer at that time, an editor who, for example, created uh, Dama's magazine in 1928, which still exists today, mm. and of which Lina Bobardi was a co-editor in 1944. So she was... Um, very uh, resourceful in her skills, but she was also very resourceful in finding solutions um, for uh, developing her career as a woman, as a young woman in Italy during the war. So I think that that's something 
absolutely remarkable. And all of the experience that she had, she ended up uh, transferring to Brazil, where she found uh, a very fertile ground for the ideas and the imagination and the aspirations she had developed in her youth um, in Italy. And then, of course, the remainder of her career was developed in Brazil from 1946 all the way to 1992, which is when she passed away and she worked until the very last minute. In the review quote I read, Martin Filler referred to Bobardi as not always truthful. Can you explain uh, or say what you think he meant by that? Mm. Um, I think it has to do with with the fact that I wrote this book uh, wanting to clarify um, who she was, for which, who she was, and still keeping her voice alive. I believe that when we uh, write, especially about a person in particular, uh, either in a monographic or in a biographical way, we tend to um, be tempted by the myth of that person. And uh, Lina Bobardi um, was so interesting that, uh, and her life was so rich, that it's very easy to uh, let some uh, imagination uh, take over the reality. And she contributed a lot to that, and I think that this is what he's talking about, because if you look at some of the biographical notes that she left and that she wrote at the end of her life, she embellished a lot of the story, she corrected some of the lines, and she used to say that you know, the life we live is the life that we want it to be, and not the real one. And as a biographer, as a writer, as a historian, I try to be as truthful to the reality of the facts, actually, that surrounded her, that she was engaged with, and to make sure that we understand as we read the book that uh, sometimes they're not as accurate uh, in her description as uh, they were in reality. But I don't think that that's a problem, and I uh, I try to make her voice clear and at the same time provide the context for the reader to uh, understand that that was part of her personality and uh, that there was also reality that um, was the background of the story. So I think perhaps that's, uh, if it makes sense, that's what I believe he is referring to. Mm. He also used the word erratic to describe Bobardi, and you do mm. make it clear in your book that in all of her pursuits as an architect, but also as a designer and an illustrator and a writer and an editor and a curator, all of these many realms in which she worked, she mm-hmm. was idiosyncratic, and her work was is difficult to contain within a single framework. Can you talk about some of these idiosyncrasies in the context of the styles that she explored, particularly in her architectural work, but other things too, if you like? Mm -hmm. That's an interesting term. I I believe erratic would be a little bit negative. I wouldn't myself choose that that word, but I, I understand why he perhaps pointed that out, that she for an architect has a career that is so um, full of directions and different practices and she engaged different medium and she's also very idiosyncratic in her production. I perhaps would use a word that I used before which is she was resourceful and uh, she had many obstacles in her life and uh, as a woman initially working in a world that was mostly masculine and professionally um, she was also a foreigner in Brazil. She did not completely subscribe to the um, modernist architecture ideas of the time. She was very connected to certain forms of uh, 
traditions that were uh, she was very interested in popular culture and popular art so all of these different uh, interests and uh, um, resources that she used perhaps made her her very erratic to someone who is expecting a very linear production but um, I think that is very logical in the way that she uh, produce her work, that she looked at the world, and I would perhaps describe her work more as being hybrid and uh, um, than really erratic. And um, I think that has to do with how she had this incredible curiosity at the same time that she lived um, in challenging times, facing personal and professional obstacles that could uh, have uh, kept her from producing interesting work. And on the contrary, she ended up uh, being very resourceful in in her responses to this. Yeah, it is interesting that the politically tumultuous environment that she grew up in um, wound up being echoed in some ways and during the years that she lived in Brazil. What what was her relationship with um, Mussolini and the fascist regime in Italy before she yeah. left? Well, she was uh, too young to have had any relationship directly with the regime. Mm-hmm. Um, she was educated in a school whose direction was very much engaged in Mussolini's ideas for the renovation of Rome, for example, as the new capital. Mussolini saw himself as the new Augustus, and so her professors and the director of the school at the time was uh, directly working with Mussolini to change the whole face of Rome into um, a new monumental city. Um, So she was exposed to this um, mindset. She was exposed to that kind of architecture education, even though she didn't completely agree or um, absorb it or internalize it. The other interesting person that she then became very close to, uh, who was her husband, Pietro Maria Bardi, who she married in 1946, when she went to Brazil, he, in the early 1930s, had also worked with Mussolini initially, but very quickly he left that collaboration, especially, um, I believe, many um, architects and artists and uh, journalists who initially were in, uh, enthusiastic about Mussolini in the mid-1930s had already lost their um, interest and became suspicious about his imperialism. And with the racial laws that came after that, by the early 1940s, I think there are very few people who actually subscribe to his ideas, especially in the more progressive um, cultural milieu in Italy. And um, she was surrounded, of course, by that world and both culturally and physically, she lived in Rome. And finally, when she was in Milan, when uh, the Nazi regime took over um, Italy, and uh, in 1943, uh, Mussolini was taken to his um, uh, own republic, and uh, Lina Bobardi became very aware of the growing movements of the resistance. And I believe that this was a moment her, for her in 1943, 19. 44, 45, when she finally woke up to um, the real problem of this authoritarian regime that had been there. And that political lesson is the one that she took to Brazil, especially during the 1960s and 70s when Brazil um, saw itself 
in a, in a moment of very uh, harsh dictatorship that for her resembled a lot of the memories that she had of the of um, of Mussolini's regime in Italy. So actually, her engagement ended up being more in Brazil politically than it actually had been in Italy, where mm-hmm. she had been more an observant. Right. And she and her husband both wound up renouncing their Italian citizenship, right, and becoming Brazilian citizens. Did that have anything to do with their um, political engagement in Brazil? Um, I don't believe so. I think it has to do with the technicality because of 1943, which is when that happened. They uh, had to choose between the Italian or the Brazilian citizenships, unlike today where people can keep two citizenships. Uh, At that time, they had to choose, and uh, they were building a future in Brazil that seemed very um, auspicious culturally as well as in terms of their personal careers. He, He was just as interesting as she was. Um, in um, the creation of the Museum of Art of Sao Paulo, for example. And uh, so this was a choice that I believe has more to do with the technicality of being able to stay in Brazil and not necessarily an abandonment of uh, an Italian citizenship. On the contrary, I believe that they remained intellectually and uh, culturally very Italian, and uh, they continued to visit Italy annually. So they never really disconnected from Italy. Mm -hmm. You know, there are many letters that she continued to write to very influential people, such as um, Bruno Zevi, for example, who even became a senator, but he was a very important architectural critic. And uh, she was still in the 1960s, very engaged in the intellectual discussions that were happening in Italy. So, um, yeah, I believe that um, It was a technicality, not necessarily um, an abandonment or a separation from Italy. How did her um, political engagement manifest itself in her in her in her work, in her architecture, in her art? Mm. Yeah, it progressively uh, manifested itself after the 1960s. Um, It was an interesting moment in her life because in 19. 60 precisely, she became the director of uh, the recently created Museum of the Modern Art of Salvador, which is in the state of Bahia in the northeast of Brazil, and uh, which was mostly an extension of the uh, programs organized by the Museum of Art of Sao Paulo. They were almost sibling institutions, and uh, she was an envoy of uh, the museum in Sao Paulo to organize the program. She was the artistic director of the museum. And in that place in Brazil, um, which is the oldest um, colonial capital, it's uh, Salvador is a very interesting city. It's in, it has the shapes of Lisbon, the topography of Lisbon, the, arch- the Baroque architecture, but the population is very African. So it's um, a very interesting mixture. And their um, uh, popular culture is still very much alive when she landed in Salvador. And uh, she befriended many intellectuals uh, who were engaged with popular movements. And uh, her independence from Sao Paulo, her independence from her husband allowed her to mature into the person that we ended up knowing. So um, she engaged a lot with this idea that the authenticity of Brazilian design should not come from European or North uh, Atlantic, North American um, sources, but actually to come from these uh, very simple practices that she started to find 
in that region of the country. And uh, somehow that also related to her neorealist mindset that she had brought from Italy during the war. And I believe that at that time, the most uh, political um, aspects of her practice had to do with trying to figure out what could an authentic Brazilian culture be that could be designed based on uh, a grassroots move that came from people and not necessarily that came from top down. And in 1963, she organized an exhibition dedicated to these objects uh, that opened um, this new um, museum that was also going to be a design school, which she saw as an alternative to the Bauhaus model that was implemented in the south of the country. I mean, in the south of Brazil at that time with the design school. Unfortunately, uh, in 1964, with the coup d'état, she was um, she suffered so much pressure with the right-wing politics that had taken place at the time that she uh, ended up uh, resigning from the museum and uh, retrieving from uh, that direct activity that she was developing in Salvador. But she uh, started to develop her work. in that line, based on this new lesson that she had learned in this period that she described herself in an article a few years later as five years among white men, because these people that she related to were white men, but she was very engaged with the other side of that society at that time. So um, this is basically the the starting moment for for her that is really very important. She was about, she was in her mid-50s, And from that point on, in the last 25 years of her life, she developed work that was very engaged with uh, issues of popular culture. She started to talk about the fact that um, people are the protagonists of architecture and not buildings, um, not architects. So that was uh, a very interesting political discourse that she developed that was um, materialized in her projects very concretely. And along those lines... Can you talk a little bit about the reception in Brazil, both the popular reception and critical reception, the reception of the cultural institutions in Brazil to this idea that uh, a European, a woman who had moved to Brazil from Italy, um, was able to interpret the the sort of grassroots inclinations that you talked about of their country? Mm-hmm. Um, I think she found uh, throughout her life people were very supportive and engaged um, with her and vice versa. She also engaged with some very interesting people who had a lot of these affinities. And it's interesting that they tended to be younger people than she was at that time. And um, and Brazil is such a complex culture like the United States. So it's very difficult to um, – in a very um, – in a very short um, answer, um, synthesize it. But she found in in the northeast of the country more progressive people aligned with what she was doing than in Sao Paulo. There was a city that was industrializing and saw itself as the New York of Brazil. So it's really interesting how geographically and also generationally she found some people who were very much in tune with her and some people who were not. In Sao Paulo, the problem she had was not so much with the cultural institutions as in um, the architectural milieu. She, for a long time, was not recognized as a 
uh, an important or um, meaningful architect. Um, for example, even after she finished the construction of the Museum of Art of Sao Paulo on Paulista Avenue, which opened in 1968, um, for a long time she was ostracized. And uh, there are comments that minimize her work by saying that she was not a uh, truly a modernist architect. And so the very dogmatic architects who controlled discourse in Brazil at that time um, did not accept her. Um, sometimes because she was a woman and this was very veiled, sometimes because she did not agree with them and their ideas, even though she sometimes reached out to them, and also because she was a foreigner. And like her, there are many, many other foreign architects who moved uh, there after the 19. No, mid-1940s, and I think she was one of these people. Um, interestingly, she uh, was connected to the Museum of Art of Sao Paulo because of her marriage, and she did a lot of work for them and with them, uh, and which gave her a very privileged position. At the same time, she was very generous with uh, this privilege she had. But um, I would say there are some people who probably we're not very happy with her privilege, and maybe there's some jealousy in this, the part that it's hard to prove. But um, a lot, lot of uh, disagreement in terms of her aesthetics uh, ended up not being initially accepted by architects in Sao Paulo. And I would say um, until she passed away, um, some people admire her work, but some people did not. And it took... Uh, Perhaps in the last 20 years, she has been more recognized, even in Brazil, it's not mm -hmm. only internationally. To what extent do you think she was frustrated by um, resistance she met because she was a woman navigating this overwhelmingly male-dominated mm -hmm. world? Mm. Um, there's some... some um, notes that she left and even in interviews and in a lecture which she in which she said I'd never had a woman I I'd never had a problem because I was a woman mm -hmm. um which I think is a, a way of minimizing that frustration but um again I think this is speaks to her resourcefulness she was a very uh, intelligent woman she was very skilled and very um talented and I think she always um figured out things to do that interested her that's um uh, you know, had to do with her curiosity. And uh, she found one door closed and she would find a window that was open. And uh, she said once, I think that this perhaps helps us understand, when she was not given tenure at the University of Sao Paulo before she went to Salvador in the late 1950s, she, at the end of her life, she said, yes, they did not give me tenure, but I wonder if they had given, would I have done much? Yeah. <laughs> so I think <laughs> it's her way of negotiating with these obstacles, and uh, which I think is very admirable. And perhaps like Frank Lloyd Wright, who she liked to quote by saying that constraints are the friends of architects, perhaps the constraints of her life were, were also friends of Lina Bobadi. Mm -hmm. And so she very, very creatively created what she did because of the circumstances in which she lived and the people who helped and did not help her. But I don't think that that's any different from anybody's life. Right. Yeah? Can you talk a little bit about your exhibition of her drawings at the Jean Miro Foundation now, how you went about putting that together, 
um, and whether the process of curating that show revealed anything new to you about Bobardi or her work or processes. Mm, very interesting. Um, well, they, um, the Dromeda Foundation called me in the fall of 2017 and asked me if I would be interested in doing an exhibition about her after I had done an exhibition in Palm Springs. And um, I told them that I would be very interested because as an artist, I'm, I'm interested in drawings and I have been developing this more in the last few years. I suggested to them that I, I would like to do an exhibition about her drawings only because I thought that that would be um, a topic that had been overseen. Uh, we always look at her drawings, they're very colorful, they're unique, but uh, we haven't really paid a lot of attention to it. And um, also because it interests me as, as an artist. So I, uh, they accepted and they gave me mostly carte blanche given all the uh, obstacles, the budget, and uh, you know the, uh, the limitations that there are. And um, we ended up creating an exhibition that I believe is uh, it's still uh, open until the end of May. It has been very satisfying to everybody. The, um, the question for me was to try to understand her drawing because we uh, look at them, they're very colorful. They are drawings that architects, uh, they're not traditional architects' drawings. And they're also very, very different from each other. And uh, so I wanted to cover two different criteria with this exhibition. One is to look at them chronologically, because she started to draw very early. They're the first drawings from when she was nine years old, all the way to the end of her life, because she kept using drawing as, as her language, as, as a way of expressing her thoughts, of her doubts, her working method. And uh, it was her voice in a certain way. So the chronology for me was very important, but also to try through uh, a selection of a very limited number of drawings, which was 100 because of the cost of transportation. So this was a real um, a constraint. Uh, and you know, there's a real cost to an exhibition. So how to, with 100 drawings, show the chronology, but also show the diversity, which was the second point of her production. And uh, that process of selection perhaps was the hardest for me to do because there are 6,000 drawings in the archives. And um, I also wanted to make sure that because it is a museum of art and Dramiro is such an incredible artist and uh, they live more or less at the same time. He's older than she was. But um, I wanted also to establish a dialogue with his work. So uh, looking at um, works that aesthetically would be uh, suitable to that kind of exhibition was something that was important to me. Uh, what I learned in this process was um, the fact that uh, there's something very profound about her drawings. And I didn't understand that until very recently when I was talking to a very well-known historian who saw the drawings and said, oh, where does this naivete come from? And I thought, well, perhaps this is not naivete. I think this is really profound. Because in looking at her drawings, as you see the development from the very beginning to the end, and she went through a very classical education, so she knew how to draw like Dürer, how to draw like Michelangelo or like Leonardo. But she chose to develop a way of drawing that was very economic, like her own architecture. And there is a process of letting go that I think is very beautiful and very profound 
in looking at her drawings. So some of the last drawings are almost abstract, and they are you cannot recognize the conventions of traditional classical drawings that she learned in her youth. And I think this is almost uh, meditative. It's almost like a, a Zen attitude of allowing the images be what they are without having to show any kind of uh, prowess or any kind of skill. She wanted the drawings to speak for themselves. And I believe that this is the great pleasure for me to learn, uh, to have learned in working with this exhibition for a year and a half and writing about it and uh, the difficulty of establishing, like in anything in her work, uh, uh, categories that are always fixed. And so I even decided that instead of talking about um, themes, that we would talk about constellations, which are terms that come from Jean Miro and also Walter Benjamin, who uh, coined these terms, and I think in different ways, but I think help us understand that if we organize these drawings in a certain way and we have our different perspectives, we might see different relationships. And um, so the exhibition was organized so that there's some suggestions about how to look at these drawings, but everybody that goes through it will likely have a very different understanding, and I think that that's perfectly fine. Seller, it has been wonderful to talk with you. Thank you again for taking the time to share your tremendous knowledge about an insight into Lino Bavardi's life and work. Thank you very much, Jessica. It was a great pleasure. Anyone who can should make their way to the Joan Miro Foundation in Barcelona. The drawing exhibition will be up until March 26th, and the book, Lino Bavardi, is available now in bookstores and online, including through the Yale University Press website. Thank you for listening, and please visit us online at yalebooks.com to keep up with this podcast series as well as the latest from our blog and our authors.